Welcome to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast, featuring sermons given at our church and community center located in the Lincoln Estates neighborhood in Gainesville, Florida. If you find these messages beneficial, if you're part of our community, or if you want to help support the services we're providing to Southeast Gainesville, you can text the word GIVE to 352-562-7771 to make tax-deductible donations. Here's this week's message. So I'm going to move right into the teaching for today, and we're still in the Sermon on the Mount in our Kingdom Tide series. And I want to start this morning with a bit of a caveat, okay? Um, As always, this is a sermon, right? That means this is an encouragement for us to think about the way of Jesus more deeply, to listen more closely to what the Holy Spirit may be telling us to do. Um, This is not me. I'm not here. I'm not ever telling you what you have to do. Okay, that's not my role. My role is to get you to understand what Scripture says and understand what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you so that when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you're like, oh yeah, I recognize that. And then you can do what the Spirit tells you to do, not what Mike tells you to do. Okay, um, The discernment that's required and the, and the close attention to your particularity are things that I can't bring to bear in the message that I'm about to bring. So understand that you've got to do that work on your end before you apply any of what I'm going to say. Um, I don't want you to hear this as me telling you what you have to do because I'm not saying that. I also hope you don't hear this as me just spouting weak sauce, okay? I'm I'm trying to mark out a middle course between moralizing and mollifying, and it's not easy. So I hope you'll listen with gracious and open ears to this message this morning, okay? I know I don't usually say that, so now that I have your attention, uh, let me share a few verses in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to focus on today, and some of these we've already talked about in previous weeks in the series. But here are the three verses I want us to look at, or the handful of verses. Uh, In chapter 5, starting in verse 13, Jesus says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt should become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer of any use except to scatter outside for people to walk on. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. No, they place it on a stand, and it illuminates all who are in the house. So let your light shine out before humanity, so that they may see your good works and may glorify your Father in the heavens. Then in chapter 6, right after the Lord's Prayer, or part of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has us pray, forgive us our debts, just as we have forgiven those who are in debt to us. And then he explains, starting in verse 14, for if you forgive people their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you should not forgive people, neither shall your father forgive your offenses. And then in chapter 7, which we talked about previously, we're going to talk again today about, Jesus says, Judge not that you may not be judged. For by whatever verdict you pass judgment, you will be judged. And with whatever measure you measure, it will be meted out to you. Those are the parts of the Sermon on the Mount that I hope inform the message that I'm bringing to you today. And as I laid out this series uh, a couple of months ago, I I realized that, um, you know, obviously last Sunday was the first Sunday after the election, and I I felt like I had a word to share last week, and the technology kind of got in the way. So if you didn't see that, I hope you'll go back and watch that message, because I think it was important uh, for us to hear. But I also knew that the fallout from that would probably be 
ongoing into this week, and sure enough, it is. Um, and I have to tell y'all, my heart is heavy. Uh, my heart has been heavy all week. I'm deeply concerned about the divisions um, that are that are that are growing between people, and it's become like wide chasms between folks. Uh, people are leaving Facebook, which is fine to do on its own, but they're moving to Parler and MeWe or however you say that, and and those those are not good at all. That's just I'm not okay uh, with that. I'm not telling you what to do, but who be careful there. All right, um, people are removing themselves further from from public discourse, from interaction with people who might think uh, and see the world differently than they do. Uh, they're retreating further into an echo chamber that's just filled with lies and propaganda. And I think that's deeply concerning. And I'm about to say something that shouldn't be controversial, but you might take it as controversial, and I hope you won't. Um, it's clear that Joe Biden won the presidential election. Um, that shouldn't be a moment of controversy. But there are still people crying out that there was fraud. There wasn't any fraud. Even the Department of Homeland Security has said the election was fine. It was safe. It was secure. Um, there are still prophets who are persisting in predicting that Trump will stay in office. And that's just not true. And those people are not prophesying truth. Um, it's just we talked about this before about about you know the fruits that they bear. Um, but what I'm really concerned about is all this political division that's just it's been growing for for a long time, but has really just in the last few years and in the last few months and the last few weeks just widened precipitously. And all of that and thinking about the presidential election and the president reminded me of of something that Abraham Lincoln said in his first inaugural address. He said, we are not enemies. We are friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. I feel like we're in a similar moment uh, where we be, we need to be reminded that we're not enemies, we're friends. Um, but of, of course, the, the better angels of their natures didn't show up in 1861 as Lincoln hoped they would. And, and I'm worried they might not show up now either, um, which put me in mind of Lincoln's second inaugural address, which I've been meditating on all week. Um, I'm going to read that to you in full right now uh, because it's short and it contains a powerful scriptural meditation. I feel like I can do that because after Lincoln gave his second inaugural address, um, the most common reaction to it, both by people who appreciated it, like Frederick Douglass, and by his like persistent critics who hated it, um, was that it, it was a sermon and not a political speech at all. So I agree. Uh, it was a sermon. So let's remember uh, what Lincoln preached to us in 1865. Fellow countrymen, at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Then a statement somewhat in detail of a course to be pursued seemed very fitting and proper. 
now at the expiration of four years, during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest, which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation. Little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms, upon which all else chiefly depends, is as well known to the public as to myself, and it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all. With high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avoid it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide the effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union by war. While the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease, even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph, and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both should not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of these offenses, which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern there is any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said three thousand years ago, so still it must be said, 
that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wound, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and orphans, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Now you may think I'm being overly dramatic to compare our moment to the moment in 1865 when Lincoln spoke, and perhaps I'm being dramatic. I can do that sometimes. But we're on the same sort of road, even if we're earlier on in it. And the truth that Lincoln laid bare before the nation on March 4th, 1865, was that the collective action of the entire nation had led them together into judgment. Everyone thought they were in the right, but few were actually pursuing justice. And those few were late to speak the truth, and they were very salty. Uh, their light was blinding. Uh, the abolition movement didn't really start until 1831. I mean, Lincoln says slavery had been going on for 250 years. So for 230 years, no one except for the Quakers really had much to say against it. And even though that's the case, most Americans believed that slavery was morally wrong. And yet the prevailing political and legal uh, approaches were all variations of compromise, not seeking justice. Even Lincoln himself says that's what he was after. It was just like, let's just not extend it. Let's maintain the status quo. Like in Lincoln's day, we have gotten here where we are because we have ignored, we have avoided, we have refused to deal with significant realities in our society. We have worked to maintain the status quo. We have worked to maintain a negative peace in our society and even in our personal relationships. Uh, propaganda, division, graft, and vilification of the other side have become characteristic of us. It's become how we define ourselves. It's been true for a while now. And it's been getting worse, not just the last few weeks, but for years. And real and serious issues have been left undealt with and untended to because we were in this process of being uh, in a cold war with each other. Howard Thurman taught us in 1949, in this book I keep telling you to read, Jesus and the Disinherited, that there are three techniques that are used to separate us from each other and to disinherit some of us and then cause all of us, both the disinherited and the rest, to suffer because we all suffer together, right? As Dr. King taught us, we're all tied together in this garment of destiny. Thurman said there are three, there are three techniques that are used to divide us. Fear, deception, and hatred. Fear has been like our default mode since 9-11, at least. Uh, deception, um, I mean, deception's always been there, right? I was a baby during Watergate, and that was that was pretty deceptive. But, but I really feel like it hit a whole new level when Bill Clinton wanted to parse out what the word, meaning of the word is is uh, we, we kind of set a, a deeper course into deception at that point and it's only gotten worse and hatred hatred has always been with us 
but it seems like over the last four years, hatred has gone to another level as well. And so fear, deception, and hatred are characteristics of our society, of our culture, of our relationships with each other. And Lamont says that it's ridiculous how hard life is. Denial and avoidance are unsuccessful strategies, but truth and awareness mend. Denial and avoidance are what Lincoln lamented in his second inaugural address. If we continue on like we are, if we continue to deny and avoid and pretend like things aren't like they are, then we're going to face our own set of consequences. Um, like they faced in 1861 and 1865. Uh, more immediately, uh, many of us feel like we're on one side or the other of this great divide, and we don't know how to bridge that with people on the other side. And some of us have loved ones who are retreating further into that scary echo chamber that I mentioned before. So this is real. This is what we're dealing with right now. Um, and the answer is what Thurman taught us in 1949 and what he taught us, what he explained to African-Americans who were suffering under the cruelty of Jim Crow was that following the way of Jesus as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount is the way forward. It is the way of being salt and light without being salty and without being blinding. So Thurman says a man must love his neighbor directly, clearly, permitting no barriers between. And he says the first step toward love is a common sharing of a sense of mutual worth and value. This cannot be discovered in a vacuum or in a series of artificial or hypothetical relationships. It has to be in a real situation, natural and free. This is the solution that Thurman lays out for African-Americans for how to deal with their white oppressors. So if it can work for them, it ought to be able to work for us. And it's a specific, particular reading of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a particular way of seeing and understanding the way of Jesus that I've been trying to promote to you the last several weeks in this series. Thurman defines it specifically this way. The religion of Jesus says to the disinherited, love your enemy. Take the initiative in seeking ways by which you can have the experience of a common sharing of mutual worth and value. It may be hazardous, but you must do it. Now again, Thurman says you must do it. I'm not saying you must do it. You have to weigh out the hazard, and it will be hazardous. And sometimes the hazard is within your own family, within the people that you love and are either the closest to your heart. And I can't tell you how to negotiate and navigate that in specific instances. But in general, this is the way of Jesus. And this is the way for the followers of Jesus to move forward, being salt and being light. And I think it's the only hope for our society in this moment, because we're in a scary place. And I don't say that to promulgate fear, because fear is one of the tactics that's used to divide us. I say that because we have to take this seriously, more seriously than we've ever taken it, if we're going to do the work that Jesus is setting before us. And so Thurman lays out not only the techniques that are used to divide us, fear, deception, and hatred, but he gives us his own technique, or what he says is Jesus' technique, for overcoming those techniques. 
Thurman advocates what he calls a technique of implementation where a reverence for personality um, that is rooted in concrete experience becomes a characteristic of one's behavior, is how he says it. And that one being each one who endeavors to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this technique is how we oppose and overcome the three techniques that are used to separate us from each other, um, which disinherits some and causes all of us to suffer. Um, fear. We overcome fear by trusting in Jesus. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry, right? Remember the birds, remember the lilies, don't worry, don't be afraid. We put our trust in Jesus, that our hope is not in humans, our hope is not in our own strength, our hope is in the Lord, and he will care for us. And even, and especially when he calls us specifically to risk, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, that he will be with us and go with us. And that's really the heart of what I'm saying today. We've said in the vineyard for years, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And what we mean by risk is sort of, you know, like you might feel embarrassed in front of your friends. We're moving from that to like real risk. Real risk. Really risky situations. Which is why I can't tell you what you have to do in specifics. You have to discern that for yourself and in community. But the way we overcome fear is we trust Jesus with our lives. The way we overcome deception is we tell the truth. We speak the truth. We speak the truth in love. We endeavor to be salt, not salty. We endeavor to be light, not blinding. But we don't just pass by things that are untrue. Now, I'm not telling you to get into arguments on social media or in any other platform about things. That back and forth just honors the lies and the propaganda that's being said. It's enough, I think, most of them to say, that's not true. That's just not true. Look, that's promoting fear. That's how you know it's not true. I mean, think about the campaign that we just witnessed before us. And there was a lot of promulgation of fear. Like if Joe Biden gets elected, the world's going to end. I mean, it was really ridiculous. Some of the fears that were being plastered on the TV screens. Those sorts of lies that promulgate fear. These are the techniques to divide us. And we have to speak truth against those. And the way we overcome hatred is this reverence for personality by caring for the other person, especially the people that are closest to us, by refusing to disengage, by not writing them off, not letting them retreat into their echo chamber, but continuing to be in relationship with them, continuing to press forward in love for the people that we love and care about. I think that's really important and it's going to be really hard for some of us in the coming weeks and months and, and maybe years. But it's work that I think Jesus is going to call at least some of us to do some of the time, if not more of us to do more of the time than not. Uh, and remember we talked a few weeks ago about turning the other cheek, right? Uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're given the, 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 the slap of disrespect, Jesus tells us to stand there. And turn the other cheek. The standing there is refusing to be afraid, not cowering in fear. I won't cower in fear. I'm going to stand there. And it's also saying to the person who's telling you, you're worth less than me or you're worth less. Like, no, I'm equal to you. The truth is, I'm equal to you. So we refuse to cower in fear. We trust Jesus. We refuse to accept the lies that some people are inferior to others. Or that, you know, 
the world's going to end in some sort of cataclysmic way if certain people don't maintain their power. No, we're not giving into those lies. We're not giving into those deceptions. And then the way of love is we don't return the violence for violence. Jesus doesn't tell us to hit back. He tells us to take the way of nonviolence. So the way we overcome hatred is we just stand there. We refuse to cower. We refuse to accept the lie. And we refuse to retaliate. We don't give back hate for hate. We don't give back violence for violence. We give back love for hate. We give back nonviolence for violence. We work for positive peace like Dr. King encouraged us to do so long ago. And some of us have real and personal hurts from all this. Please know that I'm not telling you just to forget or ignore those. That's not truth telling either. Okay? The way forward can't come by means of deception. It, can't, it can't come by means of denial. It can't come by means of avoidance. We have much work to do to repair the relationships between us between all of us. And that only begins with an honest assessment of the damage that's been done. Uh, Theologian James McClendon says this, Christian community is exactly one in which forgiveness, not punishment, is the norm. And he goes on to explain that forgiveness has to be real. That resentment itself of an offense is a gift from God, which when I read that was like a radical thought to me. But Resentment is a gift from God that something wrong has been done and has happened and needs to be made right. So we're never called to forgive and forget. That's not biblical. We're called to forgive and to cease to harbor resentment once the resentment has been dealt with. We're to remember in a different way. If, we, if, if there's no resentment to be overcome, then forgiveness is meaningless. McClendon teaches us. Forgiveness leads not to forgetting, but to a special kind of remembrance, remembering under the aspect of membership in the body of Christ. And McClendon tells the story of of a man who uh, brought in a business partner, and this business partner uh, ruined their business, uh, did some illegal things, some nefarious things, and ruined both his own finances and, and this man's finances and their entire business. And so, of course, he severed ties with the man and no longer did business with him and did not forget uh, what he had done. But then over the ensuing years, as he learned of difficulties the man had uh, with, with paying medical bills or with things with his family, financial hardships, he would take care of the man and take care of his family. Uh, he never did business with him again, but he forgave him and he let go of the resentment and he ministered to him. And in the end, they were reconciled in relationship because this man forgave. Um, he didn't forget, but he didn't hold resentment either. I hope that makes sense, and I don't want to dwell on it too much today. But I'm not telling you just to forget and pretend and ignore that you haven't been hurt when you've been hurt. Some of us have been really hurt personally through all of this. And that has to be dealt with. And I pray that it can and will be dealt with in God's time and in God's way. Uh, as we continue to try our best to follow the way of Jesus as the Spirit leads us. And so, in trying to think through how do we do this, I mean, I mean, Thurman gives us the framework, but how do we really walk out um, this technique of the reverence of personality? I thought of two sources that really helped me. So, and, and it's interesting because they, they're, they're different, but they had a lot of similarities. One 
is this book called The Mr. Rogers Effect, which is a really lovely book, and you know I love Mr. Rogers. And the other is a book that's a few years older. It's called The Book of Joy uh, by the Dalai Lama and by Desmond Tutu. It's also full of wisdom. And, and check this out. I'll put this on the screen. The Mr. Rogers Effect, uh, Dr. Anita Kunli tells us that here are seven uh, secrets to Mr. Rogers' approach to life. One, we listen first. We listen closely to what the other person is saying. Uh, two, we validate their feelings. Feelings are always valid. And these people that are caught up in the echo chamber have serious fears and doubts, and their feelings are valid and, and ought to be validated. And third, uh, Mr. Rogers encourages us to pause and to think and to reflect on the feelings and what we've listened to and how to best respond to help that person grow with us in relationship and open up to the world around them. And the, the fourth thing Mr. Rogers says is to show gratitude, gratitude for that person uh, that has been in our lives and, and that we love and care for. That leads us to develop empathy for that person to what they're going through, even though it may be very different from what we're going through. Mr. Rogers also encourages us to practice acceptance of the other person just as they are. You know, that's the most famous line of his, I, I like you just the way you are. Can we say that truly of the people that we're in contact with, especially the people that we think are on the other side or that we've been in conflict with? Can we accept them just as they are? And then seventh, can we establish security? Can we establish a safe place where the person can be who they are and can feel um, life outside of that fear, life outside of that echo chamber? The Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu give us um, eight pillars of joy, which are very similar to Mr. Rogers' secrets. Uh, the first they give is perspective, is understanding that everyone has a perspective. There are many different angles to see things. The second is humility. We have our own perspective and we can maintain that, but we should maintain that with all humility. That we're not the only ones that know anything. That other people know things and their thoughts and feelings are valid as well. The third is humor. Um, Desmond Tutu is quite the jokester, and that helps keep things light and helps us to not take ourselves too seriously. It goes hand in hand with humility. Uh, their fourth is acceptance, which they say is the only place where change can begin. And you see there uh, that Mr. Rogers has that as well. They also have forgiveness, which is how we free ourselves from the past. They also have gratitude. Gratitude for our own life and gratitude for the people that are in our lives. And compassion and generosity. These are the eight keys to joy. And I would say the eight keys to restoring relationship and healing the divides between us. And I got to tell you, Mr. Rogers and the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu agree on things. We really ought to pay attention to what they're saying. And I want to leave it there this morning. I don't want to belabor this. I'm not giving you specific instructions, um, just general directions. Uh, your direct application will depend a lot on your particular context. 
uh, and will be different from one relationship to another relationship. And you have to discern that for yourself. Um, as you pause and think, as Mr. Rogers encourages us to do, that this is the way forward. This is the way we can walk. Uh, it's the way we can only walk if we walk together. And in, in the collective power that we give to each other when we walk in community. And it's the way we can only walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'm hopeful that we can be the salt and be the light that will help our society in a moment where I feel like we're at a crossroads. If things don't get better, they're going to get worse. And it's up to us, sisters and brothers, to do all we can to heal the wounds of our nation. So, look, I know this is hard. It's been a hard year. It's been a hard several months. It's been a hard couple of weeks. But it's not harder on us than it was to the African Americans that Howard Thurman was writing to in 1949. Those folks had it hard. It's not harder on us than it was on the wounded and the widowed and the weary souls that Lincoln encouraged with those immortal words, with malice toward none, and with charity toward all. And I think that's really the word of the Lord for us today. So let's take communion. If you've got something to eat, I encourage you to lift that up. And as we lift this up, this becomes the body of Jesus broken for us. And as we lift that, I want us to echo President Lincoln's words. They were true in 1865 and they're true in 2020. We can only move forward if we move forward with malice toward none. Malice is incompatible with the way of Jesus. We can't take in the body of Jesus and hold on to malice in our hearts towards anyone. This is the cure for our malice. So say with me, with malice towards none. And raise your glass or your mug. And as we raise this and say our blessing over it, this becomes the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus is the power of charity in our lives. It brings charity to us and lets charity flow out from us to each other. And it's only in the power and the charity of Jesus that any of this is possible. But with Jesus, all things are possible. It's the last thing that Thurman says in his book. Oh, I'm going to quote it. He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's what's in this cup. The power of charity that overcomes the world. So raise your glass with me and say, with charity for all. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, sons and daughters of a broken nation that's been broken many times and for a very long time and well before even its beginning. To some extent, we still suffer under the effects of the slavery that was 250 years old in 1865. What came after that was different, but not necessarily better. 
Oh Lord, may we learn from the wisdom of Abraham Lincoln. And may we learn from the wisdom of Howard Thurman. May we learn from the wisdom of Fred Rogers and the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. That with you, there is hope for reconciliation. With you, we can heal the divisions. We can bridge the divide between us. Would I ask for a season of healing and of brotherly and sisterly love to sweep over our nation within the church the people outside the church but we need you to heal our land I pray that you would help us specifically to not be afraid to refuse to give in to fear to refuse to be triggered to be afraid to not let anyone push those buttons for us anymore our hope and our trust is in you. Lord, I pray that you would inoculate us from the lies and the deceptions. And that you would give us the wisdom and the courage to speak truth. To be salt, not salty. To be light, not blinding. To speak the words you give us when you give them to us to speak. To overcome the lies and the deceptions that would divide people from each other. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know when to not disengage, when to not let loved ones retreat into a dangerous echo chamber. I pray you would also give us wisdom for when to let it go and to walk away and to trust them to another of your followers to do that work. Lord, we don't want to shy away from the risk and the hazard that you set before us. But we also don't want to be reckless in taking on risk and hazard for ourselves that you have not laid before us. Give us each wisdom to know the difference, to follow you. Lord, not to cast our pearls before swine, not to waste truth, not to waste your words, not to waste the power and the energy that you give to us but also not to fail to use it when and how you give us to do. I thank you for my sisters and my brothers. I thank you for our country. I pray your blessing and your grace upon us. Amen. I love y'all, and I will see you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast. For more information about our church and community center, including our food pantry, life skills training, legal aid, after-school and sports programs, and international missions, and how to contact us, visit GainesvilleVineyard.org or find us on Facebook. Our page name is GN Vineyard. We also have original worship songs available on iTunes. Just search for Gainesville Vineyard. You can support the work we're doing by texting the word GIVE to 352-562-7771. All donations are tax deductible. We appreciate you listening to this message and pray the Spirit speaks directly to you through something you've heard today. God bless.